This is Cuerpa Politica, a podcast about reproductive health, politics and justice in Latin America, funded by the Institute of Latin American Studies and co-hosted by me, Dr. Rebecca Ogden, lecturer in Latin American Studies at the University of Kent. And me, Dr. Rachel Sanchez-Rivera, postdoctoral fellow in sociology at the University of Cambridge. Cuerpa Politica explores reproduction in Latin America through a series of conversations with activists, practitioners, artists, and researchers working in many different contexts. Latin American countries have some of the world's most contentious reproductive health laws and policies, and there are persistent challenges facing the quest for reproductive justice. In these episodes, our conversations with experts will explore contemporary issues, such as those relating to abortion access and obstetric violence, as well as histories of reproductive politics in the region. From the relationship between empire and reproduction, eugenics, 20th century fertility control measures and beyond. In many of the episodes, we consider culture as a lens through which to understand these contexts, exploring how cultural norms, as well as media and the arts, shape the political, legal and social realities of reproduction and vice versa. Follow the podcast on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you access podcasts and get in contact with us by our social media at Cuerpa Politica on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. In this episode, we had the pleasure of talking to Professor Laura Briggs. Professor Laura Briggs is a leading voice in several fields relating to reproductive politics across the Americas. Her research encompasses histories of reproductive politics and their fundamental relation to imperialism, neoliberalism, and transnationalism. She's a professor in the Women, Gender, Sexuality Studies Department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and regularly contributes to public conversations about migration, Puerto Rico, reproductive labor, child welfare, and questions of reproductive justice. Professor Briggs is the author of several monographs, including the landmark 2003 book, Reproducing Empire, Race, Sex, Science, and U.S. Imperialism in Puerto Rico, from 2012, Somebody's Children, The Politics of Transracial and Transnational Adoption, a James A. Rowley Prize winner awarded from the Organization of the American Historians. The 2017 book, How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics, From Welfare Reform to Foreclosure to Trump. And most recently, Taking Children, A History of American Terror. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you like this episode. Laura, uh, Professor Laura Briggs, uh, thank you very much for talking to us. I was wondering if we could start with the title and premise of your 2017 book, How Did All Politics Became Reproductive Politics in the Second Half of the 20th Century in the U.S.? The book and that question track two kinds of stories that I think are important for us to understand. One of them is that that is liberalism as an economic system relies on a certain kind of slate of hand. There's the economy where economic activity takes place. And then there's the private where care labor takes place, caring for elders, caring for children, caring for people who are ill or people who have disabilities, that kind of care labor and finding and preparing food. And care labor is not supposed to exist as economic activity. And so with the 
wave of privatization that we associate with neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s and subsequently, um, one of the maneuvers of neoliberals in particular was to really squeeze care labor. So we went in the United States from having the idea of a family wage, which was sexist and patriarchal and there was everything wrong with it. But nevertheless, it accounted for the work and cost of caring for dependents. And to having the idea of individual wages, it wasn't expressed that way, but what was expressed instead was a kind of shaming of the work of care laborers care labor and care and those who couldn't work didn't count. So for example, we saw this really recently in um, Texas with a big storm and there's an energy crisis that is caused by certain ways of um, manipulating the price of energy and avoiding regulation. And so a mayor comes up, comes on social media and says, anybody who can't take care of themselves is not my problem. I'm not here to look out for you poor pathetic people. And that seems like a reasonable political line for some reason, as if there are no elderly people, no children, no people who obviously can't work to care for themselves. And in fact, nobody can generate their own electricity without a tremendous investment in infrastructure. And that's why we have electric companies. But so it's that kind of move. And in the United States, of course, it takes place particularly with reference to race. Um, so there's an effort on the political right to blame the cost of reproducing, the cost of dependency, the cost of care labor on people of color in particular. So this is how we have a long running conversation about something that the right calls welfare dependency that presumes that people who rely on government transfer payments are, are lazy and failing to do an adequate amount of paid labor rather than in fact acknowledging that the majority of people who rely on welfare payments are white children and can't go out and get a job and care for themselves. That we, the reliance on wage labor as an explanation for what everybody should be doing works to either provide fodder for shaming people who are dependent and hiding in a way the fact that they're like elderly children and people who are ill or focusing on only the sort of official economy. So in this context, it is tremendously effective for the political right to rely on shaming dependency as a strategy for shrinking the state and shrinking the responsibilities of business to provide adequate wages. So instead of welfare, every single mom has to go out and get a McJob in someplace like McDonald's or, or Walmart. And at the same time, you actually see a declining in the United States of and elsewhere of the actual value of wages in those jobs. 
So it's great for the people who run these kinds of enterprises who can demand labor from a previously you know, occupied workforce and not at all great for the children or elders or people with disabilities or people who are ill who suddenly have no care labor available. And so, you know, it shows up as, um, as the time crunch or the problem of work-life balance. Like somehow we're all just bad at walking this tightrope instead of um, acknowledging that care labor is being sucked out of people's lives. The ability to do care labor or the ability to receive care labor is being colonized by paid work and paid work doesn't pay as well as it used to, and there's no government safety net or a rapidly shrinking government safety net. So talking about liberalism and liberal states like you and care labor and the disregard of different kinds of labor, especially like care labor, you said that it happened in the U.S. and elsewhere. So basically the forces that you describe are also at work in many countries in Latin America as well that have like similarly experienced like the impact of neoliberal policies and neoliberalism as the hegemonic mode of discourse and existence. So in this region, how was uh, neoliberalism transformed the notions of uh, reproductive agency and value, for instance, in the context of transnational adoption between Guatemala and the U.S., for instance? Guatemala is a particularly fabulous example because the U.S. is involved in a civil war, an armed internal conflict, as they say in Guatemala, a civil war to instantiate neoliberalism. Right, it's battling another mode of production that calls itself socialism. And so the fight to instantiate neoliberalism is obviously not a popular one in Guatemala. But even before the war ends and the business community is able to use the force of the war and its aftermath, to in fact transform the economy in neoliberal directions. The military, as part of its prosecution of the war, kidnaps children because they have a theory of reproduction. And their theory of reproduction is that children of the left, which is mapped onto by, by the 70s and 80s, increasingly mapped onto indigenous people, although not early in the war, Their theory of reproduction is that if you allow people on the left or indigenous people of certain certain language groups to reproduce themselves, to pass on their way of life and their beliefs, their understandings of the world to their children, that their children on the one hand will be angry and resentful at the government that comes to power because it disrupted family relationships, killed people, disrupted ways of life. And those same children will have, uh, will be leftists, will be socialists. And so the military and paramilitaries, somewhat incidentally to its prosecution of the war, but also mindfully, also um, as part of their training and instruction, begins to pick up small children and either take them to a different indigenous community 
or take them into cities and drop them off at orphanages run by the church or the Red Cross, something like that. And eventually this process is monetarized because some people are able to build contracts with private adoption agencies in the United States in particular. Europe has a slightly different history that are quite lucrative. And so if you can make infant or small child available for adoption, then you can collect substantial fees. And these adoptions are taking place within Guatemala. They're taking place between Guatemala and the United States and between Guatemala and Europe, particularly Spain. And the interesting thing about Guatemala, though, is that in the aftermath of the war, where places like El Salvador, which had a similar history through the war of placing children for adoption, have halt international adoption. In Guatemala, where there's actually no very little of the insurgency left, people have been, the mass murder has been quite successful. They, the um, people who committed acts of genocide remain in power. And as they demobilize the paramilitaries and people associated with the political right take up more and more positions in government down to the smallest towns, the adoption program actually intensifies and grows. And it grows throughout the period of the peace talks. There are fights over it in the context of the UN soldiers and UN peacekeepers, not peacekeepers, the people who are involved in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, an American woman who is actually not involved in um, adoption at all is accused of picking up small children. She's taking pictures of cute kids and she is the subject of mob violence in people's response to this taking of children. At the end of the, at the conclusion of the peace accords, you have the explosive growth of a privatized adoption industry between the United States and Guatemala. And Europe over time actually stops doing adoptions with Guatemala as it becomes clearer and clearer that there is kidnapping, there's exploitation, there's lack of consent, there is lack of proper judicial processes. Birth parents who may want to keep the child are not given an opportunity in court to have due process. This is partly accomplished through language and location. People would have to walk to a city and operate in Spanish, which many indigenous people don't use. But it's also accomplished, we might say consensually, because in the sense that people are, single mothers in particular, are drastically impoverished as the aftermath of the war continues and less and less able to, to support children. And so midwives become important brokers and, but it also, as I said, continues as a practice of coercion and kidnapping. And so by 2008, Guatemala has largest per capita um, rate of sending children in adoptions. And they almost all by then are going to the United States. 
that reasoning of like kidnapping children and putting them like for adoption sounds a lot like a legacy of uh, eugenic practices. And like just like talking about like eugenics and and U.S. interventionism, uh, I was uh, wondering if we could or if you could explain to us a little bit about the Puerto Rican context of questions like relating to reproduction fueled and shaped U.S. imperialism in Puerto Rico. Well. As you know, I've argued in Reproducing Empire that one of the places where the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States was negotiated was in the context of questions of sexuality and reproduction. And specifically what I mean by that is questions of eugenic birth control, sex work, of um, the testing of the birth control pill, and of eugenic sterilization are a place where both US intervention in the sense of building a public health apparatus that the US insisted would help Puerto Rico, which it argued beginning in the 1930s was overpopulated. And while we're familiar with this language of overpopulation, it seems like common sense. In the 1930s, it was a new language. Puerto Rico was one of the first places to be labeled overpopulated. And what the US colonial apparatus saw from social workers to governors was households with lots and lots of children, which it saw not as potential workers in an agricultural economy, especially not after hurricanes in 1899 and 1932, when agriculture was wiped out on the island both times, it saw the context of, it saw too many children and an excess population. And it was a version of the, it was a version of the argument that I was talking about earlier, the neoliberal argument, but it was a much earlier incarnation of it. And in some ways, simpler in that. So how the overpopulation argument worked was the crisis of the 1930s on the island was not a global economic depression, was not the disaster of a hurricane in 1929. I said it wrong earlier. I said 1932. But the and it was not a crisis of u.s colonialism it was too many workers and not enough jobs and so it saw children as excess population again dependency as something that had to be supported by a certain kind of economic infrastructure that in the context of the u.s was more and more imagined in terms of industrialization it wasn't appropriate to puerto rico at all but, but in the US, as more and more of the United States sort of was relying on industrialization as a form of the economy, it saw Puerto Rico as failing at industrialization and failing to have an appropriate number of children that would work in those kind of factories. So that argument justified all sorts of coercive measures including passing eugenic sterilization laws that for the very first time actually considered birth control a form of eugenic sterilization. Now, again, this happened in other places in the 1950s, so it doesn't sound that strange. 
but it was new. And in that, so in a sense, what it was saying was babies themselves were a kind of disability, a kind of um, population that was, to use the language of the time, sort of a burden on, on the economy, a burden on taxpayers, a burden on the state. And Puerto Ricans fought against that in all different kinds of ways. On the one hand, there was an effort to, to allow Puerto Rican women access to birth control in order to choose what kinds of families that they wanted. Well, nobody liked that. The Catholic Church argued, in a sense, it was arguing against the eugenic argument that there was such a thing as excess population. But it also was arguing against female autonomy to make decisions about what the shape and form of individuals' families was going to be. And in the context of the emergence of Pedro Abisu Campos and the Nationalist Party, there was a fight against the colonialism of that kind of argument or the way that um, overpopulation served to obscure the effects of colonialism in underdeveloping the economy at the same time that it too could lean at times on a mistrust of female autonomy and instead sort of turn to an idea of the naturalness of, um, of women's reproduction and the Puerto Rican mother and surrounded by her many rosebuds um, and her children. So that's one version of that argument. We saw it. We saw both industrialization and this sort of this strategy for using um, privatizing dependency to use a later language um, or to use a later formulation. And we saw it first in Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans saw it and fought against it. And so what I mean when I say this was the arena of struggle Many people would look to Cuba or the Philippines and their, and their very sort of militarized fight against U.S. occupation and say, oh, Puerto Rico didn't fight as hard. And there was something wrong with Puerto Ricans that they didn't fight as hard. And it seems to me that it's the opposite, that Puerto Ricans found a much different arena in which to fight. Yeah, and I, I think building on that, because like you mentioned the role of Pedro Albizu Campos and you like uh, link it to like uh, the struggles for reproductive justice and also like you point out to the transnational connections of like Cuba and the Philippines and maybe even Guam, if I dare to say, like I was wondering how does like race science like specifically like intersect with like colonialism, empire, reproduction and control? Absolutely. So I mean, what we know, going back to the very earliest moments of the European colonial enterprise, is that modern theories of race evolved slowly, but definitely in relationship to colonialism. So they start out as religion. The problem with folks is that they're not Christian, these heathens. And by the, um, by the 19th century, for sure, and to some extent in the 18th century, 
we see a hardening of a very modern idea of race that is elaborated through science. It's a science of difference. How do we account for the ways that people live differently, the different geographic regions that Europe and increasingly North America are involved in throughout this period? The way we understand this difference is through science, through taxonomy, and certain peoples are, are racially different. And those racial differences, of course, almost immediately have reproductive implications. Because the one of the theories of race that gets articulated much more profoundly through science than it ever did through religion is that race is something that is passed on to offspring, where you can convert the offspring of somebody who's religiously different, and you, can, you, can't, you can't transform race, which is taken to be um, rooted in the body. In that sense, like you mentioned, like the broader uh, colonial enterprise, like in relation to like empire and how like, you know, this like bodies or, or like using Stuart Hall, like the West versus the, uh, like the rest, like uh, in this like modern conception of race, like is like categorized like through science and taxonomy. So I was wondering like, where is like Puerto Rico's place, like in the broader history of reproductive injustices? So the United States is late to the colonial game, or and it very much thinks of itself in um, in alignment with Europe. And so it has to move quickly in relationship to sort of consolidating its empire by by the turn of the 20th century. And that's not to say that the US wasn't engaged in empire building before that. Obviously, the continental empire. Um, was built through war with indigenous people and economic and other means, including debt and persuading and using mortgages, um, mortgaging property as a way of building, of appropriating indigenous land. And I mention that, of course, because that's the current strategy in relationship to Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico, it seems to me, has an important place in, in the history of both reproductive injustices and in US empire building. Because US, so Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican elites, of course, don't think of themselves as racially different from the wider America's story. The work of consolidating a belief that the Spanish story and the English story or the US American story of race is really different, has to sort of obscure the fact that the new world story of race is the same across the Americas, right? It's, it's European and it's indigenous and it's African. And in various um, combinations with varying degrees of violence and also intermarriage, you see those, um, you see those combinations enacted in, in different ways. So on the one hand, the US, as I was saying, relies on a reproductive narrative to account for Puerto Rican difference. And Puerto Rican difference on the one hand is that Puerto Rican women are having too many babies 
and it's very identified with women. Um, obviously, that's not how reproduction happens. Um, but the reproductive story is very much about controlling the bodies of women in particular. And um, women or feminized people are part of this, are sort of the sun around which the constellation of political positions revolves from nationalist to liberal to, um, to colonialist. So Puerto Rico is incredibly important, as I said, in accounting for overpopulation. Overpopulation becomes an issue that opens the door to, to all kinds of reproductive coercion. And overpopulation is also an account of the economic responsibility for care labor. So do government and um, business have a responsibility to pay a living wage or to supporting people? And neither the state nor um, big landowners who are employing, um, you know, by then employing people before that, of course, slavery is fundamental to the story. And slavery, enslavement does have a theory of reproduction, right? Not only is enslavement itself supposed to be passed on racially, but responsibility for raising the next generation of laborers, of slaves, actually does devolve on um, owners, people who claim to own the bodies of other people in chattel slavery. And to varying degrees, they take up that responsibility, right? We see in many places the preference for essentially importing that labor force rather than allowing it to reproduce, paying for it to reproduce rather than, um, which also means not working people to death. And by the 20th century, when the United States is involved, on the one hand, labor revolves around race, revolves around African descended people working in agriculture at the behest of other people. And the idea that mixed people, Hibaros, European descended people are working on their own land. Of course, it doesn't work in any way as neatly as that, but that's the theory. So the land has to support them and their offspring. And in this account of the modernization of the economy, of course, overpopulation is a problem either because the land is not productive enough to support a next generation or because the state and an industrialist class are responsible for um, supporting the next generation. And so working all of that out becomes the problem of US American intellectuals, state-based colonial apparatus, a public health apparatus. Public health is above all a theory of population, right? And so liberalism, the privatization of dependency takes new forms in and through the relationships in Puerto Rico. And Puerto Ricans themselves become important to struggling for these meanings, these definitions, these understandings of 
dependency and population and US American efforts to sort of grind down Puerto Ricans and produce as much labor as cheaply as possible takes a new form for US American intellectuals, the state apparatus and the business class. And mostly it fails, right? Mostly um, people remain incredibly poor, largely unemployed throughout the 30s and 40s. And then with massive state investment, and this has everything to do with the Cold War and the desire to sort of hold up Puerto Rico as the jewel in the crown of US of the US empire. So this is what happens if you ally yourself with the United States rather than as in Cuba with the Soviet Union or the East. Or so if you don't become socialist, you will look like Puerto Rico. And that provides an incredible impetus to for massive US investment in education, in um, industrialization, in um, transfer, direct transfer payments, um, food stamps ultimately by the 70s. And you can, you can totally see the difference, right? Puerto Ricans start growing taller, nutrition changes. And, and this, this work of showing off the, the changes in Puerto Rican bodies becomes part of this Cold War um, apparatus that by the 1990s and the Clinton administration is over. And instead, what it's replaced by is essentially a sacking of the economy, producing this sort of increasingly, this growing deficit, which is sort of sustainable for a while until it comes crashing down after the economic crisis of 2008. Uh, because like we were already talking about the hurricanes like in the early 20th century, I think it's San Siriaco and San Ciprian, maybe. And uh, we were also talking about um, overpopulation and the myth of racial democracy as uh, the, the national trope for uh, Puerto Rico. And maybe even like when talking about or thinking about the early 20th century, maybe even the flu. Like I was wondering because like there like it is like very interesting to see the different correlations, especially when it comes to like labor and how labels like uh, labor always revolves around race, like just linking it to like Wall Street and Bitcoin vultures, like after Hurricane Maria in 2017. So I was wondering how would you relate this historical dynamics to contemporary struggles for reproductive justice in Puerto Rico? So in some ways, Puerto Rico so keeps being itself. Right, U.S. Um, economic efforts to um, to essentially shame Puerto Rico into paying the debt again revolve around sex. Right, it's Puerto Ricans have um, too many welfare mothers, too many um, the minimum wage shouldn't exist in Puerto Rico. Minimum wage um, is, represents sort of a failure of exploitation or something. And so you see the economists in Britain, you see the Wall Street Journal in the US, you see um, the PROMESA all articulating these accounts of welfare and dependency 
and Puerto Rican men don't like to work. Puerto Rican women have um, too many babies and, and then too few babies, which, you know, underpopulation is the new trope for why Puerto Rico can't pay its debt, which like just makes me furious, right? Like you can't, you have to have it one way or the other. Either there are too many babies or they're not enough. Um, and the ability to just switch those population discourses on the one hand is infuriating. On the other hand, it makes it really clear how much there was never a possibility of sort of balancing population and the economy because the economy really has nothing to do with population. But so this, uh, the economist calls Puerto Rico welfare island, um, suggesting that it's too reliant on government transfer payments. And it's important to notice that these are the exact same government investments that throughout the Cold War were what made Puerto Rico a showcase for what people call democracy, which means capitalism. And that per capita, these government transfer payments in supporting dependency, elders, children, and so forth, were never equivalent to what happened on the US mainland. So the um, post-Hurricane Maria landscape is one in which the economic situation is that US financial markets have invested intensely in buying Puerto Rican debt and trying to monetize Puerto Rican debt, trying to make a ton of money off of Puerto Rican debt and essentially using the island as a piggy bank for Wall Street investors, hedge funds, also known as vulture funds. Um, some of the ones that, the, that were most involved in Puerto Rico in the sense that they waited until the island was, the island's government was increasingly desperate to continue to fund pensions and Medicaid and other, other human needs for dependency, um, for dependents, for small people and old people. The vulture funds swooped in, bought Puerto Rican debt with, uh, on, for pennies on the dollar, and are now involved in as um, essentially self-dealing and contractual relations with members of the PROMESA board to get paid a lot of money. So to make a lot of money off of that debt and at the same time, continuing to elaborate a theory of the private uh, theory of dependency to account for why it should get paid, right? You have to justify paying all this money to mainland investors and, you know, stealing the salaries of teachers, stealing the pension of elders to, um, to pay these hedge funds and these alter funds. Why do we have to, why should Puerto Rico do that? Why is this a justifiable debt? Why isn't this an unpayable debt or an unjust debt, which is a legitimate category, right, in um, international relations? Well, the problem with Puerto Rico is, again, too big of a welfare state. Medicaid, Medicare are too expensive. Um, AFDC is too expensive. And we have to lower the minimum wage so as to um, extract the maximum value for the labor and too many children, not enough children, it's all the same. 
So grinding on people's ability to make a living, the ability of children to survive, the ability of hospitals to be available to laboring and birthing women or sick kids or sick elders is not a problem for the state or the, um, or the business community anymore. That becomes simply part of the apparatus, except to the extent that hospitals are money-making activities. In, in, in light of this contemporary political climate, what reproductive and gendered implications are there or have, have there been to the political leverage of depth in the Caribbean in light of this uh, political uh, contemporary political climate? Sure. Well, if the effect of debt, and this is a choice, but if the effect of debt is to make what people need to live less available, then part of the reproductive implication is the, it's the question of the survival of children or the migration of, the, of people who are sort of in that parent age bracket to places like the United States to where there's work available and the creation of um, of a sort of reserve of elders and less often children who wind up staying in Puerto Rico while they're supported through the wages of people who migrate. And that's what Rasel Pareñas um, calls a care deficit because it's not like kids and old people don't need literal care, like, Children need to be fed, elders need to be checked on, and the labor that's available to do that becomes smaller and smaller in places like the island. And that has tremendous effects on people's ability to survive. At the same time, of course, you see organizing in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria to feed people, to repurpose agriculture, to rethink all these economic relations, to rethink energy and um, fossil fuel dependence. And you see tremendously thoughtful activism, um, both in terms of these kinds of survival and the building um, community kitchens and that sort of thing, building apparatuses to check on and care for people. You also see an increasing articulation of what is the crisis of the economy? What is the legitimate role of debt? And do, should debt be bringing down schools and hospitals or does the state or communities have a responsibility to just have those things? and how can communities support them? So you see again, sort of polarization, neoliberal promessa trying to grind on people's ability to get the things that they need to survive at the same time that you have communities fighting back for what we could call reproductive justice, the right to housing, the right to um, adequate food, the right to healthcare and the right to communities that support 
kids and elders. Yeah, definitely. And especially like after Hurricane Maria or even during like the the earthquakes, like you have like a big role of the community, but at the same time, like you have like people like Julia Kelleher uh, trying to close down schools and doing like fraud and, and stuff like that. So right. like it's a very like paradoxical uh, setting what's happening to Puerto Rico. I know that we don't have that much time and like we need to wrap up. So I wanted to say like, thank you very much like for like lending us like this time. Like I actually learned a lot. <laughs> uh, and Really? I feel like I keep, you keep asking me about reproduction. I keep asking, answering you about the economy. <laughs> Well, it is everything like very much linked. And I think that is like one of the most like important things like when researching uh, reproduction. And I think that is like, yeah, like a great contribution to, to the field. So yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're very excited about <laughs> your new book. And uh, yeah, thank you very much like for, yeah, for talking to us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cuerpa Politica. Join us for a new episode every fortnight and click on the follow button to receive notifications about podcast episodes. Thank you to the Institute of Latin American Studies, School of Advanced Study, University of London for generously funding this project.